Welcome to Legal Management Talk, the official podcast of the Association of Legal Administrators. I'm your host, Kate Raftery. Today we're talking to Tim Corcoran. In addition to his own Corcoran Consulting Group, he's a well-known speaker at ALA events and workshops and the chair of our Membership Development Committee. Soon, Tim will be an instructor at the Advanced Financial Administration for Legal Management Professionals workshops happening in Chicago in September, as well as Austin in October. It's all about law firm financials and profitability. So Tim is here to discuss one such topic, changes in partner compensation. By the way, he'll also be covering compensation at the regional conferences too. Welcome, Tim. It's great to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So I run my own consulting practice now, uh, and my consulting advice is based on 20-plus years as a business executive. Now, during that time, my clients were law firms and law departments, so I've spent pretty much my entire adult life helping uh, law firms and law departments to succeed. And so now as a consultant, I just translate those skills and ideas and experiences to help business leaders who are practicing law by day but running large enterprises uh, as well um, how to run their businesses more effectively. Great. Uh, so let's get right into it. Um, we know this isn't really the favorite subject of firm decision makers since they're the ones talking about their own pay. Uh, but why might law firms need to move away from traditional models of partner compensation? Yeah, it's been said that partner compensation is the third rail of law firm management consulting. Uh, third rail referring to that very large electric rail that uh, subways and some trains have where if you touch it, well, you're toast. So this is a hot topic, but it's also a very dangerous topic for law firm leaders to engage in because there is a, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of uh, uh, tradition steeped into this topic. But it's critical that law firm leaders now uh, address what are uh, some really longstanding challenges uh, in partner compensation that really are put some firms at a significant disadvantage. But for many firms, it's not so much currently a disadvantage so much as they're not actually maximizing their opportunity in the market. They're holding themselves back. So it's, it's really about missed opportunity. And so I think it's uh, pretty critical at this time. I also think it's, it's really the responsibility of management. So when I hear a law firm leader, a uh, member of the executive committee, managing partner, a chair, or so on, say, you know what, we're going to work on a lot of other stuff, but we're not going to touch partner compensation. My first reaction to them, a little bit of tough love, is, well, then you need to step down and find someone else who's willing to address this because it is the responsibility of law firm leaders to create alignment between what's good for the partner and what's good for the partnership. And if there's something out of alignment, you can do a lot of very tactical things to help improve the firm's fortunes, but nothing will have the greatest impact as addressing partner compensation. What are some ways that law firms have adjusted their compensation plans? Well, there's quite a lot of movement in compensation plans these days. I would say the most uh, critical and most visible area of improvement in partner compensation is improved metrics and transparency. So let's talk about each for just a moment. So the metrics uh, often rely on a measurement of profitability. It used to be productivity, or in other words, how many hours did you bill at what rate? And if we can sometimes back out the cost of what your it takes to put you in your chair, right, then we can see your profitability. But oftentimes we ignored profitability. We just said, are you bringing in hours? Are you bringing in rates? And, uh, you know, those who bring in the most in those categories, we're going to pay the most. But over time, we realized that there are different economic characteristics to different practice areas. 
to different geographies, to different matter types, even different tasks. And so not every practice has the same potential. So a dollar in practice A might be hugely profitable, but that same dollar in practice B may be very dilutive. And so you can't just focus on the productivity or the top line production metrics and hours and rates. You've got to look at what does it net contribute to the firm? And so that's where profitability comes into play. So there are firms that are making that a very base component of compensation. There are other firms using it as one of, of several factors to identify the various contributions of the firms. And uh, there's other metrics as well, uh, taking a look at things like uh, uh, collaboration, cross-selling, uh, mentoring, and uh, even succession planning, different ways to start to reward the behaviors that we expect of the lawyers. So the bottom line is obviously very important. So what impact does changing compensation have specifically on profitability? Well, we have a lot of behaviors in law firms that are good for the firm generally, but are not the wisest, most profitable decision. Now, let's acknowledge right up front that while a law firm is a business, and we can't really make that mistake and pretend it's just a profession, um, it really shouldn't be ruled on, on the notion that our most important criteria is driving profit. But profit has to be a factor in the way we run our business. And so if we incorporate profit into the compensation process, we realize that we need to reward the behaviors that lead to profit, and we need to discourage the behaviors that uh, dilute profits. So some examples might be um, a partner who isn't very busy decides to do work that would otherwise be sent to an associate. Well, in typical law firm finance, the more we push the work down, the more we leverage the work, the greater the profit margin for the firm. So a partner who decides to keep that work, um, I appreciate that that partner is not otherwise busy, but keeping that work instead of leveraging it uh, deprives the firm of profitability. Uh, what can be even worse than that is when that partner says, well, the client's really not going to pay partner rates for this work, but since I'm not busy, I'll do the work and I'll discount my rate down to a senior associate level. Well, that creates a double whammy because not only have we diluted profitability, but we've also created some pricing pressure because now that client is going to say, well, if you can do this work at that rate, why don't you do other work at this rate? And I want other partners elsewhere in the firm to do work at lower rates and so on. So it's behavior like that where we've got to say, we get it, you're not busy, but don't worry. We're going to reward you for the right behavior. And that, in this instance, that behavior might be delegating the work even if you're not as busy. Um, discounting rates as well, you know, discounting the rates just to get the work or discounting rates to unprofitable levels, we have to, uh, we have to address that behavior. Uh, I mentioned succession planning a moment ago. Uh, that's a challenge as well because we, we sort of ask the partners to make some choices, sometimes acting against their economic self-interest. We're asking a senior partner who may be retiring in a few years, why don't you take less compensation as you head into retirement and uh, by doing so, you, you free up some compensation for the younger partner who hopefully will take your place in managing this key relationship. Or the reverse, we say, sorry, young partner, the senior partner is going to keep all of the origination credit or the working credit until he or she leaves. In the meantime, why don't you work for free or uh, skip making your own book of business while you work alongside this partner in hopes that that relationship will accrue to you once he or she steps off the stage. And so we're forcing these partners to make a choice that, may not be in their best interest, but is good for the firm. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, that's a leadership challenge. That's where the leaders need to step in and say, well, if this is a firm imperative, if we want succession to work, if we want these revenue streams to persist, then we've got to reward the partner's behaviors. And the behaviors we want is collaboration. 
And so succession planning is a key area where compensation is helping to drive the right behaviors and allowing the partners not to act selfishly, but to act on behalf of the firm because that's what they're being rewarded to do. So there's a lot of uh, issues like that in partner compensation changes that are, you know, the what's good for the firm and what's good for the partner have been out of whack. And it's, it's time to, to address that and reconcile that. So we've been talking a lot about positive reinforcement of behavior with these models, but uh, how would a firm handle underperformance in various areas? Ah, uh, yes, the classic law firm partner underperformance. I get this call quite often. <laughs> Tim, we need your help having uh -huh. a tough conversation with a partner who's not performing well. My first question is, what is the definition of solid performance? Show me the behaviors and expectations you have of your partners. And by the way, with the understanding that not every partner is built the same, right? In baseball, we call uh, the experts a, a five-tool player, someone who can do everything. Well, in a law firm, mm -hmm. not everyone can be a rainmaker. Not everyone can be that fantastic technical expert service partner. Not everyone can be the greatest mentor and trainer of associates. Not everyone can be the greatest manager of the client relationship and managing the matter. There's different people on the team that, that contribute differently. So I ask not only show me what solid performance looks like, show me how it looks differently for the different contributions you have, because only then can you say underperformance means you're not meeting these criteria. And the answer I get back most often is, oh, well, we don't have any expectations of our partners. We just trust that they will make wise business decisions because once they became an equity partner, an owner of this firm, they magically were conferred all of this information about how to make battlefield decisions on behalf of the firm and on behalf of themselves, and so we don't want to get in their way. But the reality is performance management is as necessary with owners of the business, you know, partners, as it is with anyone on the staff or any other profession. And so underperformance is a function of, first of all, defining what we expect of our partners, what contributions, even in, in measurable ways, we, we want to see from them. We might even expect different partners to contribute differently. And so our measurement of their performance is not relative to each other. It's relative to the goals we've established for those partners. And so now we have a better understanding of what underperformance looks like, and now we can engage in performance management. And in some cases, that means your compensation might suffer if you choose not to avail yourself of the tools and resources or if you choose not to engage in the behaviors that will generate greater profits and, and a positive outlook for the firm. If you choose not to, that's your choice. You're an owner, but we're not going to pay you to, uh, to act against the best interests of the firm. But in other cases, it allows the partner to say, oh, I see now what you need me to do. You've given me a good roadmap. You've told me how to improve performance, and I'll, I'll, I'll dig in and I'll do that. So there's really not a downside unless the partnership and or the management just don't want to engage in the conversation because rather than build a cohesive firm, they'd rather persist in this notion that we are individual businesses that share a logo on a business card. And there's far too many firms operating like that. Mm -hmm. And finally, you referenced this a little bit earlier, um, but how would these compensation approaches apply to associates, if at all? Yeah, so, well, partner compensation is going to be different because partners are owners. Um, I mean, of course, there's non-equity partners, and, and those are typically salaried, and, and they typically have an expectation of contributions to the firm that go beyond just associate work. But uh, associates and, and, uh, of counsel and non-equity partners should also have expectations on them. What do we want from you? What are the behaviors that we should be looking for? How are your contributions going to be measured? 
And uh, not only are there financial contributions, but are there non-financial, subjective, community-oriented, firm-oriented, um, you know, what are those tasks and, and contributions we want of you? And so when we do a good job of establishing what it means to be a partner today, associate compensation should be a function of that. Well, then we need to build an associate compensation plan that builds up from first year to sixth year, seventh year, eighth year, ninth year, whatever it might be where we start to look at people um, as uh, possibly partnership material. We need to give them that roadmap and say, well, here's what it means to be a partner. We've established that. Now, as you're moving up the associate ranks, we expect you to avail yourself of the tools, resources, and training to sharpen these skills and uh, do what it takes to become a partner. So we can measure that rather than you look smart, you look tall, you have good hair, I guess you're a partner. Um, of course, poking fun, that's not how we've picked them in the past, but rather than have it be subjective, it should be based in part on objective criteria. And we have rewarded the associates as they move up the ranks for delivering what we expect. And also this is provides some safety that some associates either don't want to be partner or don't have what it takes to be partner, and that's okay. In today's law firm, we need all sorts of contributions. And so if we determine uh, through the career arc that this associate does not have what it takes to be an owner of the business, well, we may say to them that you're perfectly welcome to stay. We're going to reward you handsomely for your contribution. It's not an owner contribution, but we value what you do bring to the table. And the compensation plan for associates should be able to accommodate that. Well, thanks. That was definitely an illuminating look at a topic that people probably need to talk about a lot more. Uh, so thank you so much for talking with me, Tim. That's my pleasure. If you want to hear more from him, make sure to register for a finance conference and a regional legal management conference. They're coming up soon. And thanks to our listeners and subscribers for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us, which makes it easier for others to find the podcast. As always, you can learn about ALA and our upcoming events at alanet.org. So until next time, 